Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. February 12. On this date in history in the year 1924, Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin is performed for the first time. The audience packed a house that could have been sold out at twice the size, wrote New York Times critic Olin Downs on February 13, 1924, of a concert staged the previous afternoon at the Aeolian Hall in New York City. Billed as an educational event, the Experiment in Modern Music concert was organized by Paul Whiteman, the immensely popular leader of the Palais Royal Orchestra to demonstrate that the relatively new form of music called jazz deserved to be regarded as a serious and sophisticated art form. The program featured didactic segments intended to make the case, segments with titles like Contrast, Legitimate Scoring versus Jazzing. After 24 such stem winders, the house was growing restless. Then, a young man named George Gershwin, then known only as a composer of Broadway songs, seated himself at the piano to accompany the orchestra in a performance of a brand new piece of his own composition called Rhapsody in Blue. It starts with an outrageous cadenza of the clarinet, wrote Downs of the now-famous two-and-a-half-octave glissando that makes Rhapsody in Blue as instantly recognizable as Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It has subsidiary phrases logically growing out of it, often metamorphosed by devices of rhythm and instrumentation. The music critic of the New York Times was in agreement with Whiteman's basic premise. This is no mere dance tune set for piano and other instruments, he judged. This composition shows extraordinary talent, just as it also shows a young composer with aims that go far beyond those of his ilk. It may be true that George Gershwin had always hoped to transcend the category of popular music, but the piece he used to accomplish that feat was put together very hastily. Just five weeks prior to the experiment in Modern Music Concert, Gershwin had not committed to writing a piece for it when his brother Ira read a report in the New York Tribune stating that George was at work on a jazz concerto for the program. Thus painted into a corner, George Gershwin pieced Rhapsody in Blue together as best he could in the time available, leaving his own piano part to be improvised during the world premiere. Rhapsody would, of course, come to be regarded as one of the most important American musical works of the 20th century. It would also open the door for a whole generation of serious composers from Copland to Brecht to draw on jazz elements in their own important work. February 13, on this date in history in the year 1998, downhill skier Hermann Mayer crashes in Olympics. Austrian ski racer Hermann Mayer makes one of the most dramatic crashes in skiing history when he catapults 30 feet in the air, lands on his helmet, 
and rams through two safety fences at an estimated 80 miles per hour on February 13, 1998. Amazingly, Mayer suffered just minor injuries and walked away from the crash. Several days later, he won gold medals in the giant slalom and Super G events. Mayer was born December 7, 1972, in Altenmark, Austria. As a boy, he was trained by his father, a ski racer and ski school owner. As a teen, Mayer was recruited to attend the Austrian National Ski Academy. However, he was sent home after a year and told he had no future as a professional skier because of his small size. Mayer later became a bricklayer and taught skiing at his father's school in Flachau, Austria. He competed in regional competitions before eventually earning a spot on Austria's elite national team. Mayer won his first World Cup race, a Super G, in February 1997 and began his domination of the skiing world the following season. On this day in 1998, at the Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, Mayer was competing in the men's downhill, an event he was favored to win when he lost control during the 7th and 8th turns. He went flying into the air and made a cringe-inducing crash landing. To the amazement of those watching, Mayer managed to get up and walk away with only minor injuries. Several days later, he took home gold medals in the Super G and Giant Slalom events. Later that season, he won his first overall World Cup championship. Mayer's aggressive skiing style and ability to survive a seemingly fatal wipeout earned him the nickname The Herminator, a play on fellow Austrian Arnold Schwarzenegger's movie character The Terminator. Mayer won his second and third overall World Cup titles in 2000 and 2001. In August 2001, Mayer was in a life-threatening motorcycle accident that led doctors to consider amputating his leg. Instead, he underwent major reconstructive surgery and missed the next two seasons of competition, including the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, Utah. He made a spectacular comeback in the 2003-2004 season and won his fourth overall World Cup championship. At the 2006 Olympic Games in Turin, Italy, Mayer won a silver medal in the Super G and bronze in the giant slalom. Mayer announced his retirement in 2009. February 14. On this date in history, in the year 270, St. Valentine is beheaded. Around the year 270 A.D., Valentine, a holy priest in Rome in the days of Emperor Claudius II, was executed. Under the rule of Claudius the Cruel, Rome was involved in many unpopular and bloody campaigns. The emperor had to maintain a strong army, but was having a difficult time getting soldiers to join his military leagues. Claudius believed that Roman men were unwilling to join the army because of their strong attachment to their wives and families. To get rid of the problem, Claudius banned all marriages and engagements in Rome. Valentine, realizing the injustice of the decree, defied Claudius and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. Valentine was arrested and dragged before the prefect of Rome, who condemned him to be beaten to death with clubs and to have his head cut off. The sentence was carried out on February 14, on or about the year 270. 
Legend also has it that while in jail, St. Valentine left a farewell note for the jailer's daughter, who had become his friend, and signed it, From Your Valentine. For his great service, Valentine was named a saint after his death. In truth, the exact origins and identity of St. Valentine are unclear. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, at least three different St. Valentines, all of them martyrs, are mentioned in the early martyrologies under the date of 14 February. One was a priest in Rome, the second was a bishop of Interama, now Terni, Italy, and the third St. Valentine was a martyr in the Roman province of Africa. Legends vary on how the martyr's name became connected with romance. The date of his death may have become mingled with the Feast of Lupercalia, a pagan festival of love. On these occasions, the names of young women were placed in a box, from which they were drawn by men as chance directed. In 496 A.D., Pope Gelasius decided to put an end to the Feast of Lupercalia, and he declared that February 14 be celebrated as St. Valentine's Day. Gradually, February 14 became a date for exchanging love messages, poems, and simple gifts such as flowers. February 15. On this date in history, in the year 1903, the first teddy bear goes on sale. Toy store owner and inventor Morris Mitchum places two stuffed bears in his shop window, advertising them as teddy bears. Mitchum had earlier petitioned President Theodore Roosevelt for permission to use his nickname, Teddy. The president agreed, and before long, the other toy manufacturers began turning out copies of Mitchum's stuffed bears, which soon became a national childhood institution. One of Theodore Roosevelt's hunting expeditions provided the inspiration for the teddy bear. Ironically, though he was an avid conservationist, Roosevelt-led hunting trips often resulted in excessive slaughter, including one African trip during which his party killed more than 6,000 animals for sport and trophies. However, the idea for the teddy bear likely arose out of one of Roosevelt's more compassionate acts. Reports differ as to the exact details of the inspiration behind the teddy bear, but it is thought that while hunting in Mississippi in 1902, Roosevelt came upon an old injured black bear that his guides had tied to a tree. The age, sex, and state of health of the bear remains contested. While some reports claim Roosevelt shot the bear out of pity for his suffering, others insist he set the bear free. Political cartoonists later portrayed the bear as a cub, implying that under the tough, outdoorsy, and macho image of Roosevelt lay a much softer, more sensitive interior. February 16. On this date in history in the year 1923, archaeologist opens the tomb of King Tut. In Thebes, Egypt, English archaeologist Howard Carter enters the sealed burial chamber of the ancient Egyptian ruler, King Tutankhamun. Because the ancient Egyptians saw their pharaohs as gods, they carefully preserved their bodies after death, burying them in elaborate tombs containing rich treasures to accompany the rulers into the afterlife. In the 19th century, archaeologists from all over the world flocked to Egypt, where they uncovered a number of these tombs. Many had long ago been broken into by robbers and stripped of their riches. When Carter arrived in Egypt in 1891, he became convinced there was at least one undiscovered tomb 
that of the little-known Tutankhamun, or King Tut, who lived around 1400 BC and died when he was still a teenager. Backed by a rich Brit, Lord Carnarvon, Carter searched for five years without success. In early 1922, Lord Carnarvon wanted to call off the search, but Carter convinced him to hold on one more year. In November 1922, the wait paid off when Carter's team found steps hidden in the debris near the entrance of another tomb. The steps led to an ancient sealed doorway bearing the name Tutankhamun. When Carter and Lord Carnarvon entered the tomb's interior chambers on November 26, they were thrilled to find it virtually intact, with its treasures untouched after more than 3,000 years. The men began exploring the four rooms of the tomb, and on February 16, 1923, under the watchful eyes of a number of important officials, Carter opened the door to the last chamber. Inside lay a sarcophagus with three coffins nested inside one another. The last coffin, made of solid gold, contained the mummified body of King Tut. Among the riches found in the tomb, golden shrines, jewelry, statues, a chariot, weapons, and clothing— the perfectly preserved mummy was the most valuable, as it was the first one ever to be discovered. Despite rumors that a curse would befall anyone who disturbed the tomb, its treasures were carefully catalogued, removed, and included in a famous traveling exhibition called The Treasures of Tutankhamun. The exhibition's permanent home is the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. February 17. On this date in history, in the year 1904, Madame Butterfly premieres. Giacomo Puccini's opera Madame Butterfly premieres at the La Scala Theatre in Milan, Italy. The young Puccini decided to dedicate his life to opera after seeing a performance of Giuseppe Verde's Aida in 1876. In his later life, he would write some of the best-loved operas of all time, La Boheme in 1896, Tosca in 1900, Madame Butterfly in 1904, and Turandot left unfinished when he died in 1924. Not one of these, however, was an immediate success when it opened. La Boheme, the now classic story of a group of poor artists living in a Paris garret, earned mixed reviews while Tosca was downright panned by critics. While supervising a production of Tosca in London, Puccini saw the play Madame Butterfly written by David Belasco and based on a story by John Luther Long. Taken with a strong female character at its center, he began working on an operatic version of the play, with an Italian libretto by Giuseppe Giacosa and Luigi Illica. Written over the course of two years, including an eight-month break when Puccini was badly injured in a car accident, the opera made its debut in Milan in February 1904. Set in Nagasaki, Japan, Madame Butterfly told the story of an American sailor, B.F. Pinkerton, who marries and abandons a young Japanese geisha, Shio Shio-san, or Madame Butterfly. In addition to the rich, colorful orchestration and powerful arias that Puccini was known for, the opera reflected its common theme of living and dying for love. This theme often played out in lives of his heroines, women like Shio Shio-san, who live for the sake of their lovers and are eventually destroyed by the pain inflicted by that love. 
perhaps because of the opera's foreign setting or perhaps because it was too similar to Puccini's earlier works. The audience at the premiere reacted badly to Madame Butterfly, hissing and yelling at the stage. Puccini withdrew it after one performance. He worked quickly to revise the work, splitting the 90-minute-long second act into two parts and changing other minor aspects. Four months later, the revamped Madame Butterfly went on stage in the Teatro Grande in Brescia. This time, the public greeted the opera with tumultuous applause and repeated encores, and Puccini was called before the curtain ten times. Madame Butterfly went on to huge international success, moving to New York's Metropolitan Opera in 1907. February 18. On this date in history, in the year 1885, Mark Twain publishes The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mark Twain publishes his famous and famously controversial novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, on this date in 1885. Twain, the pen name of Samuel Clemens, first introduced Huck Finn as the best friend of Tom Sawyer, hero of his tremendously successful novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, in 1876. Though Twain saw Huck's story as a kind of sequel to his earlier book, the new novel was far more serious, focusing on the institution of slavery and other aspects of life in the antebellum South. At the book's heart is the journey of Huck and his friend Jim, a runaway enslaved person, down the Mississippi River on a raft. Jim runs away because he is about to be sold and separated from his wife and children, and Huck goes with him to help him get to Ohio and freedom. Huck narrates the story in his distinctive voice, offering colorful descriptions of the people and places they encounter along the way. The most striking part of the book is its satirical look at racism, religion, and other social attitudes of the time. While Jim is strong, brave, generous, and wise, many of the white characters are portrayed as violent, stupid, or simply selfish, and the naive Huck ends up questioning the hypocritical, unjust nature of society in general. Even in 1885, two decades after the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn landed with a splash. A month after its publication, a Concord, Massachusetts library banned the book, calling its subject matter tawdry and its narrative voice coarse and ignorant. Other libraries followed suit, beginning a controversy that continued long after Twain's death in 1910. In the 1950s, the book came under fire from African-American groups for being racist in its portrayal of black characters, despite the fact that it was seen by many as a strong criticism of racism and slavery. As recent as 1998, an Arizona parent sued her school district, claiming that making Twain's novel required high school reading made already existing racial tensions even worse. Aside from its controversial nature and its continuing popularity with young readers, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn has been hailed by many serious literary critics as a masterpiece. Ernest Hemingway famously declared that the book marked the beginning of American literature. There was nothing before. There has been nothing as good since. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for... February 12 through 18. If you'd like to learn more about Erza Lay, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, 
We invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.